I'm Christy Hemingway, host of Ed Curation, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another great episode of My EdTech Life. Thank you so much for joining us on this wonderful Tuesday evening, or it may be well into Wednesday, depending, as always, where you may be joining us from in the world. But wherever it is that you're at, thank you, as always, for making My EdTech Life part of your day, part of your listening pleasure and viewing pleasure. Thank you all, as always, for all of your likes, the shares, the follows. Thank you so much for subscribing to our YouTube channel. All of that helps the show continue to grow and also helps us continue to bring you some amazing conversations and amazing guests like we do tonight. So I or like we have tonight. So I'm excited today to welcome Amanda Bickerstaff to the show. And Amanda is the CEO and founder of AI for Education. And we're definitely going to be talking all things AI. So I'm just really excited to uh, have you here as a guest. Amanda, how are you doing this evening? Yeah, I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Excellent. Well, I'm excited. Like I said, uh, you know, I know said we have a mutual friend, a mutual connection, which who is Rita Ferrandino. So that's wonderful because I saw her already commenting here or she put a comment earlier. And so hopefully she'll be joining us live. But for sure, I know that she'll probably be catching the replay as well. And so that's great. So thank you so much, Rita. And of course, having that great connection. So Amanda, before we get started with our conversation, can you please give your, uh, you know, our audience members who are just getting to know who you are and hearing about you and today, Day, they get to hear about the work that you're getting to or that you are doing in the education and the AI education space. Can you give us a little brief introduction and what your context is within the AI for education space? Sure. Well, um, I started as a teacher. So I was a New York City teaching fellow, alternative route. At 22, I moved up from Georgia, which is where I'm from, and started teaching high school biology in a high complexity, low income school. Um, and it uh, really uh, has always been my formative experience as a professional, um, seeing how hard it was to, to teach, um, just in general, what it requires to be thoughtful, engaged, you know, proactive, not reactive in any situation as an educator is just extremely um, eye-opening. Eye um, but it also taught me a lot about the importance of equity in our systems and that equity of access, equity of, of, of supporting like marginalized communities to have a better education experience has been a really strong thread of my career. Um, I left that role. I thought I needed a PhD. So I went into a PhD program, but at the same time was like, you know what, I really like working. So I was in New York City at the CUNY Graduate Center doing some um, PhD coursework, but I was also like working three jobs um, and doesn't make a lot of sense. It's great for not having loans, but it isn't really good for, you know, deep academic thought and writing. And so what ended up happening is I got led, I kind of let my interests lead me after a couple years and decided to leave the, uh, the program and after learning a lot and actually start to work. And so I came to EdTech through that process and in about eight years really started to build EdTech companies and education companies, whether that was online professional development for teachers, coding for students, um, did some last mile work 
And that led me randomly to Melbourne, Australia, where I was a first time CEO in a brand new country. Um, I didn't understand one single acronym for six months. If any Australians are here, apologies. I didn't know what ATAR was for a really long time. But um, through that was uh, in this really unique position. It was the the my hardest job ever was teaching until I became a first time CEO in a new country during COVID. And so through that process, um, really started to understand the other part of this ecosystem. So I'd been a teacher, I'd been a researcher, and now I was suddenly building products directly for classrooms. And that is a very complex you know, experience. It's not that easy. We don't make it very easy for ed tech providers, um, but it really taught me a lot. And when I left that role, I came back to the US after traveling the world for six months, which was pretty cool and was looking about, thinking about what to do next. And I actually started building a generative AI tool. So I was like, this is a great new technology. What could it do around supporting students' well-being and or data analytics and all these different explorations? But at the same time, I realized pretty quickly that um, this transformational technology, we were not prepared for. Not just education, but the world. Like this happened much, much faster than we were expecting, which is how you've seen this really kind of knee-jerk reaction from even the people that created it, trying to create distance from it. And then if you think about like all the different layers, like education can be really hard to adopt new technology and change for all kinds of reasons, and many of them very important. So I started AI for Education essentially with a prompt library. So here's some easy prompts to help with your practice and then started posting some practical applications. And by, by Memorial Day, it became clear that, you know, if I was going to follow what the, the you know, that was having the most impact, which is very important to me, that I should focus full time on like helping education institutions, educators, students, teachers, leaders uh, navigate what it means to responsibly adopt AI into their practice and their and their context. And so that's how I came here with you today. It's been a wild ride, a really fun one. I get to talk to people from all over the world, uh, but it's definitely one that is, you know, we see a lot of challenge. So it's been a been an interesting time. You know, and that's great. What you just described and the wealth of the experience that you have, and especially going from, you know, teaching in the classroom to CEO, and then of course, you know, or creating and building and now, you know, having your company here you know, again, you know, it's been wonderful. And I love because you see, you have that perspective from the teacher standpoint, and then you also see, you know, the ed tech standpoint, like why, why is it difficult for tech companies to come into schools and things of that sort. So can you just tell us a little bit about that experience, you know, as far as, uh, I guess, you know, the ed tech and then of course the K-12 space, what are some things that maybe uh, we could do better in the, in the K-12 space? And then of course in the ed tech space, just so we can have a, a nicer relationship because myself as an instructional tech, I see so many companies and then of course our districts are very uh, specific to what needs to be seen, what needs to be done and meet certain criteria and so on. So what are some things that you've learned from seeing it from the teacher side and also from being on the ed tech side? 
Well, I think, first of all, there's just a glut of tools. So, you know, there's some research that shows 2000 different tools, uh, like within one district. When we did, we did research on the impact of COVID, some of the biggest of its kind when I was in Australia. And we found that some schools are using 15 different systems just to approximate on like a classroom environment at the beginning of COVID. And so I think that there is a couple of things as an ed tech community that we could do better. One is I think that we can collaborate better, share best practices, you know, collaborate, um, you know, instead of kind of creating everything within a silo, actually seeing in which we, there are ways to actually create together, instead of 10 years later, getting acquired and then being together. And, you know, it's a lot better, I think, to kind of merge and like find similarities or partnerships uh, so that you have better systems that are significantly, like hopefully less complex for educators and students. So I think there's something we could do as ed tech. And also I think that there needs to be a much more of a overlap between education people and technologists. I think of this attack as a, a Venn diagram where the sweet spot is if you have educationists, educationalists and technologists that work hand in hand. But a lot of times what we have is educators that have technology enabled like platforms and then technologists that have some education tech like enabled piece. But very rarely is it the two together, which I think is incredibly important to build things that are fit for purpose that actually work within context. So I think that's number like that's on the ed tech side. On the school side, oh man, guys, it's really, really hard to sell into a school district because every district is like a special flower. You guys are snowflakes. Everything is a bit different. Uh, we don't have interoperability. We do not have systems that all work. I'll tell you right now, trying to create a platform that took in student data like to be able to send surveys, right? <laughs> like in, to be able to have this, we had the CSV format. Oh man, it took us months and months to get it right. And we never quite got it right because every single school had a different system where their data was stored. It was collected in a different way. It was like, you know, there was no consistency. And so there's just a lot of like really technical issues, but also like we make it pretty hard for people that do have great programs to show that evidence. Because if you don't, if you can't get into a school to build evidence in a safe piloted way, then how are you going to be able to build something to then show that, that, that evidence, right? So Instead, what happens is we have hypey type of things or teacher led, which is great in some cases, or things that look really cool or seem like they fix something or are less expensive. And then those become what's the noise in the system. And we don't really have these evidence based tools. So I think that there are so many things that I learned. I learned <laughs> I could I could tell you, Fonz, like, you know, how not to uh, set up emails like how not to set up student IDs because sometimes schools will have six. So you don't want to use that as your identifier in some cases. So I think that that really also is like, I really, it really sits with me as a, you know, I'm thinking about my own organization of like, how do we create things that are fit for purpose, but also how do we kind of talk about these things and build better together so that when we do have Gen AI tools that are fit for purpose, so they actually work within the context of a school. Excellent. And you know, those are all valid points because I, I see it for the last seven years in this position, and then, of course, like I mentioned, coming in from business into education, just the, the plethora of tools that are out there and everybody wanting to use this and they want to use that. Luckily for our district, when we um, did get into that area, when we had to shut down, we really, we standardized just on four main tools and that was it. Like, this is what you're running mm -hmm. your show with. Obviously, you had teachers that were a little bit more comfortable with some tech tools that they would implement but for the most part we just did four 
and they did very well. And those are the four that we still maintain today. In addition, we've only added two more platforms for instructional, uh, you know, for math and for science, social studies, just two platforms. So we're trying a little bit better to take those, you know, platforms off the plate so we can really focus on just getting what it is that we need, but the most effective way. So, you know, it is a work in progress for sure. And especially with decision makers, for example, like you mentioned, you know, you've got teachers that have the tech experience, but then you've got the technologists also that have the education experience. And then, but sometimes the communication may not be there. So, but anyway, so going into the main topic now, we're talking about AI. And of course, we're talking about um, AI for education, which you are the CEO and founder of. So thank you so much again for coming on the show so we can continue these conversations, uh, you know, since January or this late December having these conversations and wonderful guests such as yourself coming on and sharing your experiences has been something that has made an impact. I know for my audience and obviously the people that follow the show to continue to learn and to continue to see things in a different perspective. So I kind of want to start off, you know, we're breaking the conversation down into three sections. In the first section, we're going to be talking about some of the challenges and the triumphs of AI in education. And, you know, now that we have you here also just so you can share your experience as a CEO, but also, you know, from your customer base and from your users, what you have heard. So first of all, I want to ask you, what do you believe is the single most significant challenge that we have with integrating AI in education today? Oh, I mean, this is a hard one because I think there are a couple challenges, which is maybe mm -hmm. why, like, we are so challenged is there isn't just one. I, I can't distill it to one. There are quite a few. I'll, I'll focus on three. One is okay. that the generative AI is is the worst it's ever going to be right now. It is, you know, this is a brand new technology. It is significantly earlier than we expected. There were no regulations in place or really like groundwork. Like this, we're not moving from like Google to like better Google. Like this is not like that step change. We're moving from Google to a brand new way of in interacting with technology um, where there isn't necessarily this like stepped approach. It's been a magnitude change. And so, but at the same time, these tools are actually not fit for purpose. They're not fully reliable in a lot of ways. Number one is they hallucinate, like they make stuff up. That's a feature and a bug. Every foundational model, whether you're using OpenAI, Claude, Llama2, et cetera, have this thing called a hallucination, which is what makes it interesting. Like when I go and I ask it to help me write a lesson hook, it gives me 25 ideas and it can keep going. But at the same time, if I ask it to, um, you know, do a simple math problem because it's not actually doing math, it will tell me something and with extreme confidence that is completely wrong. It will make up citations, URLs. It will have all kinds of hallucinations that are very subtle and hard to catch. So that's one. Secondly, they are, you know, the idea of bias. You know, these systems have been trained on the internet. You know, the internet with the, you know, capital I, every, you know, Enron papers, Reddit, you know, Wikipedia. Uh, most Redditors are, are male. Most Wikipedia editors are male. Uh, it's mostly Western. Um, there are deep, I don't know if we ever think of the internet as an unbiased place, but I don't think that's what we think of. It has a lot of these very deep um, biases that are really very like, like, you know, they're, they're a big part of what the internet is. And when we train these systems on that, you're going to see those in subtle and aggressive ways. So if you, if you go into stable diffusion or other like, um, 
tools that are uh, image-based, it's really easy to see the bias. Like ask it to build you a common teacher. What will it look like? A common CEO, what will it look like? You know, it's, it's going to be these general stereotypes in very deep way. And so there are those pieces as well. And then there's questions about privacy and security. These systems are, a lot of systems interact together. People that are building tools on top of foundational models, their da your data is going a lot of different places. And sometimes it can be really tricky or hard to understand what's being trained with your data, what's not, how it's being stored. Could there be, you know, hacks, et cetera. So there's that component of it, that this is the very early stage of this very, you know, massive change. That's one. Another challenge is, is it's actually really hard to adopt new technology in general in any system. But when you look at schools specifically, we've talked about, you know, the complexity of just an ed tech tool. But when you have something that is this magnitude change, where we're coming off the back of COVID fatigue, we have, you know, really complex environments due to not in and outside the school, teacher burnout shortages. We've got all kinds of things happening. And you're bringing in this tool that actually can be used to completely blow up the traditional assessment structure of a middle school or high school English class. Um, there's a lot of questions about our readiness to adopt this technology and to find ways to make it work without it being something that is feared, banned, or seen as bad. And so we have this real complexity of just normal adoption curve stuff, plus COVID adoption, like post-adoption and fatigue. But then we also have that this is not something in which it's just slotting in a new tool. This is something going to freight, like this is going to cause a major shift in what education is outside of the industrial model, probably for the first time in our the past 250 years. So I would say that those two are big. But the last one is like when I go into schools and talk to people and I say, this is the great ways this could work. I can't recommend a tool that I say, go buy this. <laughs> and I love their cool tools being made. And, and, you know, there's so much cool stuff. But because of this, um, you know, the, the fact that there's really nothing that has been built specifically for schools that looks at safety, appropriateness, lowered hallucinations, transparency, and a lowered bias doesn't exist yet. So there's not actually even a silver bullet to say, oh, if you're going to try something, try this, and it's safe for your classroom or your students. I can't say that as well. So I think that those are kind of the three challenges that I see. Excellent. Well, that's great right there. Great insight. And we're going to go ahead and dissect those a little bit more because I kind of wanted to go in a little bit deeper. Some of the things that you talked about, especially on the data side and, you know, how to handle those conversations within a school district. But before we get into that, I definitely want to say thank you to Julie and Adam who are joining us in the chat. So I just want to share some of their comments here. So Adam is sharing here. It says the other thing that makes AI hard is that EDU is adopting it at the same same time as the rest of the broader industry. And we have previously been quite a bit more downstream from emerging technologies. All right. And then Julie here, uh, I guess, uh, talking about to that later point, as far as, you know, tools, it says, shouldn't kinks be worked out first before it is used with students? So what are your thoughts on that, Amanda? Will there ever be, you know, a platform that is going to be completely no hallucinations or anything? Anything that's going to be ready for EDU where students can be comfortably use it, teachers can comfortably use it. What are your thoughts on that? 
So I think that um, when it comes to hallucinations and bias, uh, the, the models themselves, this is how they're built, if that makes sense. So I think there's going to be quite a challenge. In fact, there was a really great article, the top 10 challenges with LMMs. And the first one was hallucinations. And so I know that there's there are organizations that are working on models that lower these or at least identify it. For example, if everyone right now goes to Claude, which Claude 2, and you typed in, give me a lesson with URLs. Um, what you could do is you would actually see it build URLs that are most likely fake because it's a very easy way to get the, the chatbot to hallucinate. But it will it has now on the bottom, if this, this URL is most likely wrong. <laughs> We're working to correct this. So it's, it's at least having some warning systems. And I know that people are starting to build wall garden approaches or structured approaches. But what happens though is that when you remove hallucinations, you move you remove the fun and interest in the like the the craziness or the thing that actually is going to make it better in terms of a brainstorming partner. So you actually get much duller or like you lose the power of generative AI, which is that ability to have that kind of conversational aspect. That's a real step change. So I do think that we are moving towards um, systems more and more. But unfortunately, education is not actually seen as a big way to make money by these big systems. Um, OpenAI, one of you know, is is here to make money. They, you know, this is what these tools are meant to do. Um, and uh, education isn't always seen as a uh, strong way to do that in the market. And so I, I always think it's funny that Sam Altman went like on a, a trip around the world and came back and said, oh, education is important. Like they didn't have a conversation at the beginning of this work that like most likely a lot of educators and students would use this as education, um, you know, as an education tool. So I think there's something to be said about that in the terms of we're going to need to see other organizations, deep tech, non-deep tech, other organizations coming in and saying education is important. So that's, that's one really important piece. They also have this opportunity to layer classical AI and generative AI, which I think is really going to be really important. And there are a lot of such good tools out there that are going to be taking these, these traditional like machine learning models around natural language processing, sentiment analysis, algorithmic thinking, and then they're going to layer like a generative kind of component to make it conversational. And you're going to have personalized learning with you know, early reading, early math, and some super cool ways, but they're not going to just be a, you know, vanilla chatbot where we're going to see a lot of these issues. So on that point, I think it's coming. I don't know if chatbots until we get to potentially significantly more advanced and in our general AI yeah. that are going to be able to really stop hallucination completely, but hopefully they'll get better at signaling when it's hallucination or just saying, Hey, I don't know. I don't do math use this tool to do math. Like I, like, I don't do math. I predict what you want me to say and I, it'll look right, but it's probably wrong because I don't do math. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. So actually, yeah, you hit on a lot of great points there. So thank you so much, Julie, for asking that. And Amanda, thank you so much also for clarifying find that for us. And I want to give a shout out to Adil also, who's joining us, Adil Khan, uh, who's joining us from uh, Magic School AI. Thank you so much for joining us. And yes, thank you so much for the shout out, Adil. I appreciate you. You <laughs> are awesome as well, my friend. All right. So Amanda, I wanted to kind of get back a little bit uh, to what we were talking about. And for for a lot of us, the, the conversation, and especially the school district, like we kind of talked a little bit about this pre-chat and how to get school districts ready and and what at least the two minimum things that we that you suggest they have. And we'll get into that. But I want to ask you about the data privacy side of this. I know that, uh, you know, in your line of work, 
work and when you go visit school districts, I am sure that that is going to be either like the number one question being asked, or at least in the top three as far as data privacy. So what are some ways that a school district may be able to kind of put themselves either at ease, also their teachers at ease, students at ease, and parents at ease, if they do decide to implement some of these tools within their school district? So, or, and what um, would be some ways that this, and I'm, I'm sorry, and what would be some ways that the school can help also in protecting our students in that way? Absolutely. Well, we have a resource and I think you do like a, um, a follow up on like what we do, but there's a resource we have, which is like the top six questions that a school or district can ask a generative AI ed tech company. And so one of the big areas is around like the human layer, like how are these tools being trained and reviewed for safety, but also around like transparent, like around safety and privacy. And so uh, there's a, a famous case of a, um, you know, a Samsung engineer going into, I think it was ChatGBT, using the tool to co-code a a new specific IP for them, went away, thought nothing of it, and then someone else asked a similar query, and then they gave them Samsung's code. Um, And Mm -hmm. so those kind of backdoors, I think, have been more and more fixed. But we have lots of different ways in which there are really big questions as to how this data is stored and used. And so the first thing I suggest is the same way that we think about personally identifying informational information in general, we should be thinking about that when we use these chatbots or other tools. And so even if you're, so the first thing is if your teachers are open, are you're opening up ChatGPT and other tools, that you're ensuring that they're not sharing information, not only about their students, but also themselves. Or if you have a leader that's using that, they're not putting like Amanda Bickerstaff, you know, forgot to like didn't have a lesson plan today or you know something along those lines like what we're doing is we're using these in broad strokes and redacted information so we always suggest like be very very careful about the PII that you share when it comes to these systems though like the deep conversations that you can have you have pieing power but you also have power in terms of what you bring in or how you bring in a technology so being able to ask the questions about how is are these tools trained are you going to take our data and train our system? So I'll use an example, Zoom. We all use Zoom, uh, you know, after COVID and during COVID. And they had a moment where they put out new terms of and conditions that your Zoom meetings are now automatically going to be used to train their AI. Same thing happened with Google Docs and others. And what that means, though, is that like now they, they walked it back. And if you pick, though, that you want to use these AI tools, that you open yourself up to training. So that means that your conversations, your parent-teacher conferences, your you know important like work that you do with one-on-one students when they can't come to school or in an online classroom can now be used to train their models to better have them be able to summarize and to whatever it's going to do in Zoom, right? And so I think that that's something to consider is that we probably don't realize already that you've already signed, you've already checkmarked these massive tools that are already using your data to train their systems. So that's one. So when we think about actually talking to and evaluating new generative AI tools, or if you're a bar, you know, you're a Google school, or you are a Microsoft school, or you are another type of school, having these deep discussions about what this data means, how are they protecting and removing PII? How are they redacting this information? How are they potentially flagging inappropriate conversations that happen through their chatbots? If a student needs help, is bullied, if there is a time in which there is information that could be harmful, um, like how are we doing this in a way that is thoughtful and strategic? 
what I'm going to say is I'm going to guess, and I, through my conversations and what I see, is that a lot of people don't have this fully baked yet. A lot of organizations do not have a fully baked um, approach. And it is a bit also because there is no firm regulation in our country. The EU has done some work on regulating, like, let's say, I was at ISTE, and like four systems use facial recognition and like we'll use that to like for surveillance, you know, that's something that's a no, no in the EU. There's all kinds of pieces around bias that have been uh, part of that regulatory like uh, body and what they're thinking about regulating these tools. The U.S. has not made that statement yet. There are some things around FERPA and COPA around the age of students and uses, but there really is no strong regulation about what's appropriate or not. And so we can't, there was a recent um, study that said about 80% of people, voters, do not believe that these tools will regulate themselves. I hope, I would wish it was 100%. So I think, I think it's probably a, it's probably a zero one in terms of this. But a lot of people have seen that these tools are trying to again, make money and to advance and to be the first, you know, the the thing that wins, that they're not necessarily going to be deeply thinking about like the intricacies of what has to happen for a school to be able to adopt these tools. Um, and so I think that what we need to do is like, we need to use our collective like power to request that like, hey, like I'm not going to turn on Microsoft Copilot until you can ensure these privacy pieces are in place and that you're not training your systems on our important data, that's our IP. Um, you know, the entire chat GPT has, and Sable Diffusion Midjourney has been completely trained on like people's stuff. And so do we don't, I don't think we want that unless we actually give up those rights. And then what we're doing is we're allowing that to create a better system specific to our context, like a walled garden approach. There you go. And you know, it's interesting times now because I think now, Oh, I, people and even teachers in the classrooms are even paying more attention now to when they log into an app for the first time and you see the terms and conditions. I think they're paying a little, little bit closer attention to that than before because it's like, yeah, it's education. Uh, it's it's an education platform. No worries. Just click yes and continue. But now that this, uh, you know, from November on and talking about data privacy and so on, I know that I've seen even myself included, it's like, all right, let me take a look at this. And I know one of the big issues was, you know, 18 years and older for ChatGPT, then they brought it down to 13 and older. And I know that there are teachers, at least what I'm seeing also on social media that are using it with students that are younger. However, they're not letting the students drive, the teachers driving, but the students are participating in, you know, creating, you know, stories and so on and different endings and just, uh, you know, having some fun with it. But of course, the teacher is the one that's putting in the information and driving all of that. So I want to ask you, as far as that is concerned, what are you, your thoughts about these technologies being used with students under the age of 13? You know, that's a really interesting question that I've gotten a couple of times, and I, I don't have a perfect answer. Um, I think that um, there are real questions that I have around the impact of synthetic relationships. So, you know, some there's Poe, a chatbot that has a personality. There's character AI where you can talk to your favorite superhero. Um, there's girl, like if you, unfortunately, as soon as a new technology comes out, it definitely gets kind of co-opted into like, it's my girlfriend, you know, and th there are these pieces. And there have been, there's a, a, a situation where a young man 
try to kill someone because he felt encouraged by his AI girlfriend, or we've had people that have uh, self-harmed because of the, the way that they've interacted with these chatbots, whether Snapchat when it first came out, others that maybe were not um, super, you know, thoughtfully created around, you know, appropriate and inappropriate interaction. So I think we have real deep evidence bases that have to be built around the impact of these tools on younger students, younger people in general. And I think that we need to do that as a priority before it starts getting released. And we're going to have Facebook AI, you're going to have Instagram AI, TikTok AI, like this is all coming. Every part of our life is going to be AI'd, generative AI-ified pretty soon. But we need to take the, what I would say is we take a, a you know, a, a critical kind of learning from social media. Um, thanks, Adam. Good questions. Have a good night. <laughs> but uh, they, you know, we need to take like social media as an app stack. We didn't do a very good job of thinking through the impact of social media on young people. And we didn't regulate it and we didn't do anything about it. And then like 10 years later, these evidence bases show that there has been deep impacts on students uh, and young people's, you know, quality of life, their their own version, like their own view of themselves in space, their ability to interact and engage. And so I think we have to be very careful with young students. I also think, again, it's these tools will mess up. They will be biased. They will be wrong. And the younger the student is, the less subtlety they're going to be able to pick up. Like I know that I've seen people take stuff that is a pure hallucination with a PhD and think it lo it looks that right. And then they will go and talk about it and it will be completely wrong. Like that person did not write that bestseller, even though it would be a great title. Like these are real things. And so I think we have to be extremely, extremely careful, but we take a responsible, optimistic approach, which, so it doesn't mean just, we can't, these students at home, their parents are like, maybe they want to talk to a cat. They love cats and the cat will help, help them, you know, do their homework. Like, we have to be aware of that. So can we teach digital and AI literacy and like the ways to think about it, have students metacognitively understand the impact on themselves? We did a webinar um, a couple weeks ago with students 15, 18, and one of the students said, you know, if you if a teacher can teach me that vaping is bad, why can't they teach me that ChatGPT can also be bad? And that it can impact my cognitive, like my learning, it can impact my mood, it can be something that could be negative to my to, to me. And I think that that's what we have to do is we have to teach the balance. And so it also, but if we can do that in a way that's really supportive and structured, where like you said, a teacher's running it, or there are more and more tools being developed that will be safe spaces for students like Scratch almost, like a Scratch version, which is a coding, like a text-based instead of text-based ghosting, you do image-based or like, you, and you can, you know, it's meant for younger kids to learn these things, lower to gate by like five-year-olds, I think use it. Yeah. But then do like, they're going to be versions of generative AI chatbots that are going to be some very, very simple, constrained, not particularly like, you know, the temperature will be very low. There won't be a lot of variation. That'll be safe spaces to teach students about these key skills. Like those will be coming over the next six to 12 months. Um, and that will be a much safer place to teach those students. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what I find interesting, like I said, being in, in this position in this role for seven years now is the fact that how things change now when we see this technology technology front facing here in front of us like we're seeing what it's able to do whereas before teachers never really thought about it because it's like oh we'll just set the student on the program and they take their diagnostic and it's going to help close that gap and while they still you know move along the program and so on so you know I, I wanted to ask you in that respect 
going into the classroom now and, you know, as far as uh, classroom methodologies and practice, what are some ways that we can ensure that the introduction of AI in the classroom doesn't diminish that human connection? Mm, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, the, the first thing is just, can a teacher save time on out-of-classroom stuff to be more present in the classroom? I mean, I remember being a teacher and not really knowing what I was doing, getting my master's, doing after-school programs because I needed the extra money, but also I wanted to help kids in different ways. And then having 150 students over five different preps. And so, you know, like there, that was a very difficult experience. And a lot of times when I got to the classroom, I didn't have a lot left for students. I definitely didn't have a lot left when I left. And so I think the first thing we can think about has actually is completely outside the classroom, which is can we make it easier for teachers to focus on teaching? Can we take away all the extras, like not all of it, but can we limit or, or actually take down all the extra stuff that a teacher has to do? Um, you know, whether that is, you know, really important stuff, but like lesson planning or substitute planning or PD work that needs to be developed and shared, or it needs to, you know, we need to do a, a you know, a new parent newsletter every month, or we have, we have to think of bulletin board ideas if we're in elementary school, like all of these things that take a lot of time the, the research shows that teachers spend about 10 to 12 hours a week doing extra stuff. And I, I joke that like the, a teacher's work week doesn't start on Monday, it starts on Sunday. Like Sunday night, whenever we all have this moment of panic a bit where you're like, okay, what am I going to do this week? What do I need to do? I've got papers to grade, et cetera. So I think that the first thing is generative AI allows us to, to, to save time on mundane and routine tasks, especially if it's done well. And so our prompt library that we have on our website has about 50 prompts that teachers can use to help them create lesson plans, syllabi, you know, they can do demos, quizzes, even respond to an email. Sometimes we don't, it takes us an hour to respond to an email because we're maybe in a bad mood and we definitely don't want to be in a bad mood to a parent and email. Can I help, can something help me write that and give me a first draft that I can do in 20 seconds instead of 20 minutes? Like those are the really, like, I think a really huge part of this. That's one. The second is, you can actually teach students how to, to use this for their own practice and learn about it. So like number one is like, what are these tools? And like, how do we understand their capabilities limitations? One of the most important things you can teach students is that generative AI is a computer program. It is computing, not thinking. It is made to look like it is thinking though. So it means that we have to use critical thinking at every stage of using generative AI. And we can save a ton of time, but we actually have to think about it. And so the way we do that is we show the capabilities limitations. There is some cool stuff. And Adil's in the, in the audience. We did a webinar last week, uh, you know, look at the idea of magic. It's not really magic, right? It's, it's a really complex program, but it can do stuff that can feel like a superpower. Like, oh man, I could like brainstorm 10 ideas and have a conversation and I can do it in the voice of some, uh, that is my type of voice. That's pretty remarkable for a student or, or adult. So that's pretty cool. But then at the same time, I ask it to do something and it hallucinates or doesn't know what it's doing, but it looks like it does. Like it shows me that this is not thinking. So for example, we have a, we have a curriculum and in our second lesson, we, uh, we play a game. We play a, like a 20 questions game where we give the AI uh, you know, very simple prompt to follow directions to guess a celebrity. And what happens is uh, the chatbot isn't thinking, so it starts to cheat. 
it starts to forget the rules. In fact, we did it live and then we felt so bad for it. We accidentally gave it a hint because <laughs> it was like, this is not working. And so like, it is something, but it shows really quickly that this is something that isn't thinking. And so we have to be critical consumers and critical users of this. So I think that's number two. But number three is like, where can I use this to create? Like, how can I use this to create a better a better thing for myself. Like one of the, the idea of generative AI means I can create with natural language, images, text, video games, code, websites, like the amount of stuff we can create, maybe not beautifully yet, but to even start creating as a 25 to 50% better is so absolutely unparalleled that it becomes a space in which we can really encourage students to really lean into that creative aspect of what it means to be a person like what do I want to create to make the world a better place or to to make things like my friends laugh or to help my parents or to think about a climate change or something I care a lot about and I think that that's where it gets really really fascinating but if you can do it kind of like where teachers have more time they're able to focus and they can create better stuff for the classroom and they can be there for the students students are learning about the limitations and capabilities of this tool but then they're also seeing how they can create something and take all of that wonderful critical thinking, creativity, and build something that they can then share and even potentially like monetize over time. They can build their own company like a 15-year-old. Uh, Krishiv has built a tutoring agency at 15. That is exactly like that's what really excites me about this technology. You know, oftentimes my colleague and myself, we talk about our college experience. And back in the day when we were going to, you know, university. And graduating, it was just, okay, you just go through here, you take your tests, and then you get your certificate, your degree, and then you're out. And I'm thinking to myself, why didn't we come out of there with an LLC? Why didn't we come out of there with a plan for a startup, you know, back in the day, you know, and now you've got young adults, you know, 15, 18, you know. And they're seem, seemingly getting younger and younger that have these amazing ideas, that, you know, because of the technology and starting these businesses and doing some great things. I mean, I had the opportunity when uh, I had uh, Dio Merci Cristel, who was here with Enlight App, and realizing that he's only 23 and, and he is out there with his first unicorn, you know, out there working. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. But it's just that drive and finding that problem, finding a solution for that and and just bringing it to life and i find that so fascinating and i really this is what excites me about this technology and in the classrooms but then important piece also is just helping our teachers navigate this space and feeling comfortable and so what i want to do now is i'm just gonna ask you one last question because i also want to talk about your website because like i mentioned to you earlier i did go through your course which i highly recommend for anybody that is interested in really just getting to know um, you know, AI at a basic level. I mean, and again, I, I say basic, but I, there is a lot of content there that you're going to come out and you're going to be like, wow, this is amazing. And it's so digestible and easy to go through. But I will talk about that in just a second. But now going to the promise of AI and some of the promises that we hear oftentimes in the education space is the promise of personalized learning. So what are your thoughts on that? And you know, how to are we there yet? Are we going to get there? Or is this something that is just a thought in the making as far as really tailoring and catering that personalized learning approach for our students and being able to close those gaps? So what are your thoughts and what are you seeing now? 
It's a great question. Um, it's actually one of the reasons I started AI for Education is that I realized that like the promise of personalization of learning was going to be possible for the first time ever. I've seen a lot of like promises of adaptive technology, of course, you know, all these different like you know, branching and, you know, support of students. And in reality, we haven't really ever gotten there. And so what I think is really interesting is right now what we have is the ability to incrementally increase that through like chatbots where like you can plan so much faster Then why don't, why aren't we automatically including student interest? Like, why aren't we automatically saying my kids are interested in X and Y and Z. So give me five ideas of how to open a lesson based on their biggest interests. And so I know that that engagement is going to help them or how do I put them in the center of the learning and, and give them that opportunity to, to structure their own prompting if they're over 13 to really help them get to what they need. As far as personalized learning, which to me is a combination of two things. It, one is, well, three. First, evidence-based and like the pedagogical underpinning, the test to be there. But the, that's just table stakes. But then the first is going to be around the zone of proximal development. So what is, you know, so in a proximal development or Bloom Two Sigma, two, six, I always say it wrong, <laughs> Bloom Two Sigma is this idea that like what we can do is that we should challenge students or ourselves, not, if you can see my hands, like like a huge amount that's really, really challenging is not what we want to do. What we want to do is want to incrementally challenge so that you can get challenged, you can be resilient, but you can also achieve. And then when we do that and we keep doing that, what it means is that we take not just little steps, but really big steps along the way. And so when we think about the zone of proximal development, we all have different ones, right? And so some of us can move much faster than others. And so for me, like personalized learning means that it takes like these systems take into account what I can actually do within my range of challenge. That's going to be encouraging, not discouraging and allow me to progress. So that's one. So I'm building confidence, resilience, and learning. The other is the engagement component. We know that if kids are the center of their learning, like, so if there is a book that was about Fonz, I would bet that you are going to be more interested in reading about Fonz and his friends than you're going to be about reading about general whatever, whatever, right? Like if we put ourselves in the middle, if you love unicorns or puppies or Pokemon uh, or podcasts, you know, like whatever that may be, that that engagement is going to create this combination of like, it, like kind of the intrinsic, extrinsic motivation. Like you're actually like encouraging students to keep getting in there and getting involved and in seeing it. So I think these new tools that are being developed, and I'm, I'm, I know quite a few of them, and I'm lucky to have um, some some ability to see some of these tools being made are really, really great around early reading, early math, um, remediation, um, language learning. Like some of these stuff is just coming out. They're really starting to combine this idea of like, what does a student need in that zone of proximal development? But then how do I make it engaging for them? And so I think we're going to see a full transformation in early, like I think that K-5 is going to be the first place that we really see it hit where they're kind of like, you can learn math in a specific way. And you know, that there are reading and fluency science of reading. So there's a lot of structure. And then what we've done is we now have tools that really create these personalized learning journeys for students. So I think that's going to be first. I think that's not that far away. I think it's going to be an under a year that we're going to see more and more of these, these products coming to market and, and showing efficacy, knock on wood. But then I think on the other end, there are people that are trying to think about like, how do I do this in general for people? Like, how do I create a roadmap of like a constellation of learning that allows someone to truly choose their own adventure? 
and to get there in a way that is meaningful to them that still builds those important 21st century skills around creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, communication, as well as building these industry specific, you know, like these, these kind of like if I want to go into STEM, you know, I do a lot around computational thinking or structured thinking or logic if I want to be a lawyer. But I think that this is where it gets really cool. Like those problems, I don't, I don't know how have seen a lot of people have that. I don't see a lot yet, but I think that we're not that far away from when we're going to see, you know, maybe MOOCs go away. Maybe my course goes away in the traditional sense that it's just built for the majority of people, but it becomes something that like you can put in a couple of things that you like the most or what you want to learn on. And then it creates the course just for you. It becomes your course and it's using our like, you know, thoughtful pedagogy and knowledge but it's Fonz's version of this course. So it leans much more into something that you care a lot about and you've already shown proficiency in something else. Like that I think is gonna come. I don't think it's gonna be six months, but I do think that in the next couple of years, we're gonna see those systems be possible. That is wonderful. And I'm all here for it. I am so excited about that. And of course, you know, everything that you've shared today just really has, is very exciting. And then for any of our audience members that, you know, are just starting to know about this and school districts and so on, you have shared so much great information here. So what I want to do now is I'm going to go ahead and bring up your website here, just so we can share with everybody. So this is AI4education.io. All right. Now, one of the great things that I want to point out here is this right here. Please don't miss out on this big blue button that says free. And as you know, my motto is always, if it's free, it's for me. You can go in here and you can get ready literally to unlock the power of AI in your teaching practice. Amanda does, um, you know, such an amazing job laying out this course and explaining. And again, it's a free two-hour hands-on PD. So Amanda, tell us a little bit about just what our viewers can gain from getting into this course and maybe who, as far as also how school districts or teachers may benefit from this as well. Well, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate it. Um, this course was uh, the first course I've written in a really long time. I actually wrote a whole bunch of courses or supported that at my first job out of um, grad school. So this is the first time I used this muscle and it was pretty fun to do actually. So the course is designed, I would say that it's for, um, it's really comprehensive, but it's a start. So if you're a super huge expert on ChatGPT, what I would say is you could still take this course, but you would probably want to skip around because what we do is foundational. You start with what is generative AI. So we go deeper into how artificial intelligence, which is 70 years old as a, as a, a you know, a, 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 a technology has led into generative AI over time. What does it mean? The capabilities and limitations. And then we go into actually hands-on keyboard. If you have not used ChatGPT, I'm going to make you use it. You're going to get in there. You're going to follow along. You're going to see me fail and like have to use like my critical thinking and prompt, like prompt engineering skills to, to do this. And then also we have a whole bunch of free resources and our most popular free resources are prompt library, which is those great prompts to get you started on any chatbot. So we have that as a way to get started. So you can see this here. Thank you for showing, you know, so rubrics, lesson plans, lesson hooks, um, email responses, quizzes, AI resistant assessments is one of our recent ones. Um, that this is really great way to do that. So we show you how to do that live. And then we move into what does this actually mean for your practice? How do you save time? How do you lower administrative burden? with hands-on like creative uses and other ways to get the most out of prompting before moving into AI ethics. 
we talked a lot about ethics today, but like, how do you build a policy? What does it look like? We actually provide sample policies and frameworks. And then that leads to what do we need to do in the classroom? How do we build students AI literacy? Um, and so it's two hours. It's hands on. Um, it is self-paced. You also get a certificate. Um, which is pretty cool. People have been sharing it, which makes me really happy. And uh, Fawn's just got, I'm sure he got his certificate. Um, but we, I just want to say like the reason why we have this and the reason why it's free is right now it, we launched it under a month ago and we're, you know, we haven't put any paid behind it. We've had just under 1600 people from across the world take it. We've had about 30% complete. Um, we've had really great feedback. And one of the reasons why it's free is that I believe very strongly that there are two things we have to do as a system, as a global system, to ensure that we're in a position in schools to responsibly navigate the adoption of AI. And one is everyone should just have an hour or two hours of training on what this is and what it means. We just need to level set and create a common understanding. We almost never have an opportunity to create a common understanding. And as Adam said at the beginning, like in a comment, this idea that's in consumer facing, we're now in this position where we actually have interests where we can say everyone should learn for an hour what generative AI is and what it can do. So that's one. And the other is every school or institution should have at least some guidance on what is acceptable use of these tools. Instead, like instead of having this be something in which it's banned or that it is like wait and see or individuals. The uncertainty within our systems are so great that it is so imperative for us to give at least some guidance and structure so that we are not spending this entire year in a position where teachers are uncertain that relationships between teachers and students are degraded because we're talking about cheating or that, you know, there is like parents that are now upset about this or there are teachers being ostracized because they are accepting this very like they're really using this for their practice and other teachers think it's not appropriate. And so I think the only, the things we have to do is something like our free course and other people have amazing free stuff. Please take it. If it's not ours, take something. And then the other is, do you even have two sentences at, in your academic integrity policy that just say, ask if it's appropriate, cite what you're doing and track it. Like just those three things is enough, I think, to give us a place where we're not kind of losing this year to the generative AI tide. Awesome. Yes, I agree with you 100%. And guys, again, the website, it's free. You need to go out there and just <laughs> check it out. She's got a lot of great stuff laid out. And again, it's very easy to understand, very low barrier to entry, and you could definitely, you know, lose yourself in it and learn. And, you know, just really, it's really laid out very well, like I mentioned. And again, bite-sized little knowledge nuggets that you can take and sprinkle onto what you're already doing great. So again, take advantage of that. It's the certificate is great. I didn't get to share mine yet because I, I'm, I'll probably do it right now after the show, but it was great and it was great time spent. So for sure, definitely recommend it. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. You know, this has been a very insightful and a very fruitful conversation. Let me see real la last comment here that we have from Adam Slatton or Slayton. Thank you so much. It says yes and include the students and other community members in the policy building to ensure ownership and accountability. Yes, Adam, definitely agree with that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, again. But before we go, this is the last segment of our show that we always end with, just kind of on a little lighter note, you know, and so on, because I know we we got in deep and Thank you so much for sharing your expertise, your passion, your experience, and your heart with us today because uh, you can definitely see how passionate you are about AI, the work 
that you're doing and the work that it can do for and to help us here in the education space and really in any space altogether. So my first question to you, Amanda, is Superman's weakness was kryptonite. So as soon as that kryptonite was very drew, drew closer to Superman, you know, he just kind of buckled down a bit and just felt weakened. So I want to ask you right now, in the current state of AI, what would you say is your AI kryptonite? I think it's the speed to which the advancement is happening and how it is extremely hard for people to get a handle on what these tools are and mean. And so it's just absolutely, you know, this, this moving um, target. So for example, there are more images made in the last nine months through like generative image creators than all images ever created in nine months. So we have more synthetic images than people taking snapshots. And that's like an insane, insane thing to think about. And so I think that the speed of advancement makes it very, very hard for us to feel confident or at least feel like we have capacity to understand and actually do something about this. And so until we can kind of create a space in which there's a general understanding, some people just feel like this is impossible. And so like, and it's not going to slow down. So how do we create structure that allows us to understand the complexity and, and be able to, to at least have some general like baseline and foundation so that when big things happen, we can absorb them and move forward without it being something that just stops us from moving at all. Love it. Great answer. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just very interesting what you shared. I had no idea about that, but thank you. All right. Question number two. All right, Amanda is if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Um, I think it would just be something around like, you know, empathy is important. Like, I, I, I think that that's got nothing to do with AI for education it has everything to do with my worldview. But I think that our, our greatest gift uh, is also our greatest weakness a lot of times, and that's the ability to empathize and understand. And I think that we're in a world right now in which, you know, empathy is in short supply. Um for all kinds of reasons. So, you know, to be able to do that as educators, but just to be able to in the world and understand that we're all coming from different, you know, different places and that a lot of us are actually trying to get to the same place um, and that we can do it together. And by understanding, you know, and, and taking a step back and seeing that like there is an opportunity for working together, collaborating, or just being patient, um, not just with others, but with yourself, I think is just really important. Love it. And you know what? That's very interesting because today I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues and um, she works in the district and I was talking to her because she's working in a different role, working as a social worker. And, you know, she's talking about, you know, what they're seeing. And I said, listen, I have a podcast. What are some topics or what are some things that you're seeing, you know, in your work that maybe give me an idea of what else to bring to the podcast or what else we can speak? about that could be used as a resource and she actually said that she just said empathy we just need more of it so thank you so much for sharing that all right amanda last question is if you can turn one of your favorite hobbies or activity you know in your companies you know oops sorry we got cut off there a little bit are we back <laughs> Yeah, we're back. Okay, sorry, here we go. So my question to you is, if you can turn one of your favorite hobbies or activities in, 
<laughs> into a full-time profession, what would it be? Well, my, my parents were, were listening in and just gave me positive feedback. Thanks, mom and dad. Um, I So they know that I when I took time off and I traveled the world, um, I, I've done a lot of volunteer work and a lot of work around um, disaster relief. And my favorite thing has always been to cook. And so I grew up with a, a, a grandmother who, you know, was my best friend and who taught me that like the, one of the best ways to show love was through food. So I've had a lot of experience with like cooking for like up to 1500 people. I've cooked in a refugee camp. I've cooked in all kinds of different things. So when I had some time to take off, I actually went to Florence for my birthday uh, and I learned how to make pasta professionally for two weeks. I did pasta and sauces in Florence. Um, and I, it was really really hard. <laughs> I realized pretty quickly, unfortunately, I have an autoimmune disease. It'd be kind of hard for me to be a chef, but I did just absolutely love making people happy through food. Like even just, I was a little bit of the teacher's pet because I always wanted the food to be really good. So I was always like the, the two, like the Nana and the, you know, the younger instructor, I always wanted them to be the happiest about our food. Um, so that was pretty fun. So if I could do, I think if I could do something differently, I love what I'm doing right now. I couldn't be happier. I've got a wonderful co-founder and team and a lot of support. But if I could do it the other way, I probably like not even open a restaurant. I would just have a food truck and I would just go from disaster area to disaster area and feed people, hopefully like home cooked, really like, you know, heartwarming food. And, and, and that would be what I do. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I really appreciate it. It says all in. Oh, OK. We've got Larry here who's commenting and he goes all in on the sauces. That's my dad. <laughs> oh, OK. Well, welcome, Mr. Bickerstaff. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Amanda has done an amazing job and she continues to do some amazing work. So, Amanda, thank you so much, as always, for being a guest. Thank you so much for everything that you shared and your passion. I really appreciate you being here today. And for our audience members, we had Adam that stopped by. We had Julie. We had at. Uh, let me see who else do we have oh my gosh names name left me here we go yeah adam okay there was two adams all right they were on here and then of course julie so thank you guys i really appreciate it uh you know all the questions and comments and for all our audience members that are going to be checking this episode out on the replay or are going to be catching it you know on spotify or your favorite podcast player please make sure you visit on uh, visit our website at myedtech.life myedtech.life where you can check out this amazing episode and the other 222 amazing episodes with educators creators founders education practitioners and so much more that you can dive into take some knowledge nuggets from sprinkle them on to what you are already doing great as always thank you so much for all of your support and again please make sure that you go to our youtube channel please guys we want to get to a thousand subscribers go subscribe to our youtube channel so you can always check out these videos and share them at your school if you find them to be a useful resource share them with your admin because we definitely have some amazing topics and some amazing experts in pretty much a lot of the, the topics that we're we're speaking of especially ai currently so thank you so much and as always my friends until next time don't forget stay techie